Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's virtual program at the Commonwealth Club. My name is Amy Allison, founder and president of She the People, a national network uh, dedicated to elevating the political power and voice of women of color. And I am so thrilled to be your moderator uh, for today's afternoon program. Today, I'm excited to be talking with Tiffany Cross, longtime political analyst and author of a brand new book, Say It Louder, Black uh, Voters, White Narratives, and Saving Our Democracy. Tiffany has spent years in politics and the media, where she's witnessed the ways in which Black voters are minimized and suppressed through both policy and media coverage. Say It Louder builds on the work and explains the ways in which Black voters have been crucial in the same political system that we're often dismissed from. And although voter suppression is not new, Tiffany Cross asserts that the change is coming by way of political activism in this country and a demographic shift. I want to thank you, Tiffany Cross, for joining us today. Thank you, Amy, for being in this conversation with me. I'm so excited to have it, but I'm especially excited to have it with you. So looking forward to this. Totally. And I wanted to just congratulate you also um, on your role in MSNBC, the Saturday program where Joanne Reed moves on uh, to her show and, 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 and you step into that role. Very happy to have you, have you there. What's it, what's it like to have a regular outlet uh, like the Saturday shows on MSNBC to address some of the issues of black political participation and issues? Well, let me just say I'm guest hosting uh, and, until any official announcement is made. So you'll see some other people in the host chair for the next month or so, but I'm very excited. I will be in the host chair this weekend uh, and a few other times this month. And I, you know, I, I enjoy, I so enjoy um, contributing my thoughts to MSNBC and other outlets. But I'll say Joy created such an amazing platform. And a lot of what I write about in my book is the lack of diversity in broadcast journalism at all levels. And so I just have to take this opportunity to say what Joy went through uh, to get this primetime slot and having an army of people and supporters elevate her and cheer her on. And what, um, what she, when, when MSNBC gave her this platform, what she gave them was 2.6 million viewers. So I just think diversity wins and it feels like an era of black women taking the helm in so many areas. The work that you're doing at She the People, um, even in the executive ranks at MSNBC, they recently promoted a woman, Rashida Jones, to lead all weekend and uh, dayside programming. So it's just, it's our time. And I, I feel very excited to be a part of this era and alive at this moment. Yes, um, it's our time and, it, and it's your time. I think about your book um, coming out uh, in the midst of a pandemic in which black and brown communities are disproportionately affected uh, with COVID-19 and are hospitalized and, and dying at higher rates. Uh, unemployment is hitting our communities hard. Um, and in the wake of historic protests in every state across the country demanding that America deal with its racism, not just its past, but its racist present. What's the journey that started you writing the book in, in, in the first place? And what does it mean for it to come out in this moment? 
Well, so for it to come out now is really interesting, Amy, because I wrote the book before Ahmaud Aubrey, before Breonna Taylor, before George Floyd. So it really shows how timeless brutality against Black people is in this country. It's historic and it's an American tradition at this point. And so the fact that I detail some of the historic murders dating back to the last century, um, even the last presidential election cycle, I create this wrinkle in time. And the fact that that's timeless really shows how Black people have always had to die in spectacular fashion to pierce the white narrative of what happens to us. So as we sit at this time of a racial reckoning, as they say, centuries in the making, um, I'm very excited about the cultural shift, Amy. I'm, I'm, you know, cheering that on for sure. But I won't be satisfied until a power shift accompanies the cultural shift. I think as long as the narrative is that white people should allow black people freedom, that white NFL owners should allow black players to kneel, that white NASCAR drivers should allow black uh, drivers to wear Black Lives Matter, the narrative uh, is still such that the power rests solely with white decision makers. And I don't support that. I think we have to disrupt power at every level until the power brokers look like America. You know, it's interesting when I literally look at your book, you've got fists on the cover in the air, but it talks about black voters and white narratives. Give us some examples from your book um, about the white narratives that have limited the political power and voice of, of black people. Sure. So in the media landscape that's predominantly won, won by, run by older white men, every political conversation centers white people, white people's history, white people's finances, white people's labor stats. You just talked about the unemployment that's highlighted uh, inequality amidst uh, a global pandemic. And really, when we hear labor stats, they frequently reflect white America's labor stats. When you look at black America's labor stats, they're often very high, very much higher. But you don't hear a lot of that uh, in the media landscape. Also, in this political uh, coverage moment, you've always heard terms like NASCAR dads and soccer moms, you know, these cute little nicknames uh, for voters that uh, exclusively applies to white voters. But black voters disaggregate in that same way. When you hear white college-educated moms or, or white women or non-college-educated men, uh, this same thing can apply to black voters, but you don't hear that. When you hear people uh, or see on, on broadcast news, people go to diners, you know, where apparently no black or brown people ever eat. But these are the voters of the heartland. And this is meant to represent what the political landscape wants and what the political landscape looks like. And I decry that's BS because I know if you go to Birmingham, Alabama to a Golden Corral after a Baptist church lets out, Certainly, those are voters of the heartland, too. If you go to Georgia or Ohio, two, two states where I grew up, certainly those are uh, voters from, from the heartland. But you don't often see that. One example that I talk about in the book, Amy, is uh, there was a segment that a network did. It was meant to be a feel-good segment. And there were uh, a bunch of groomsmen dancing in the parking lot. And someone at the hotel called the police because they were making noise. A cop shows up and they say, oh, hey, we're in a wedding tomorrow. We're just, you know, rehearsing our routine. All black guys. And the cop says, oh, I kind of like to see that. And the guys do the dance and he leaves without incident. Well, a network showed this, like, this is the good stuff. Look at this great example. And this was at the height of 2015, 2016, when black men were target practice at this point. And I just thought, I know it was not their intention to be insensitive, but how utterly ridiculous. 
that there the suggestion is all you got to do if the cops show up to not get shot is do your five heartbeats routine and do wop and diddy for the officer and you get to go home safely that night and i thought maybe if they had a black executive producer or a black host on the show someone could have pointed out how offensive the segment was so we can't be so defensive in the media that we're not willing to say you know what my cultural competence was down on that one. I just missed that one. So from a very political perspective to just a very basic humane perspective, diversity creates a better political and media landscape that directly impacts democracy and that should inform people. Yeah, I was, I was thinking about when you were saying that, um, when we talk about your journey and how uh, your life experience has taken you not only in, into newsrooms, but also political activism, did that start with the beat in DC? And where did, where did the journey up to this book start? So I started in journalism for sure. I got my start in radio and then I was hired at CNN. I worked at the world headquarters in Atlanta and they relocated me to DC uh, to help cover Capitol Hill. So I was part of coverage uh, with the, the Capitol gang with Bob Novak, if some of our uh, viewers right now are old enough to remember that show. I also did Reliable Sources when Howie Kurtz was the host and Late Edition with Wolf Blitzer. Um, Wolf is a, you know, a weekday host, but 20 years ago, he was hosting the Sunday talk show that Jake Tapper now has. And so um, in that space, I really just felt like the, the only, you know, I was sad. I felt very um, ostracized and not very welcomed by my peers. And so I write about what that was like um, navigating a newsroom and feeling like maybe this space was not for me maybe I didn't belong in broadcast news. So I took a lot of different turns. Um, Amy, I was a producer. I was a field producer. I was an executive producer. I ended up running a DC bureau. I ran the uh, BET News DC bureau for a while. I founded my own news platform with the Beat DC. I worked with investors and um, built up investment and, and navigated the land of venture capitalists. I taught a class on um, diversity in broadcast journalism at Harvard. And still to this day, people will ask, but does she have the news chops? You know, can she hold her own on an anchor desk? And you just wonder, man, if I were a white woman or a white man, people would be tripping over themselves. So give to me a platform, but that I've worked so hard and earned it. It just shows that there has to be a more diverse slate of decision makers. And so through the frustration of navigating this 20 year career of news and politics, because um, I worked on campaigns at the federal, state, and local level when I got frustrated with journalism and I would take a break every couple of years and then, you know, like a crappy ex-boyfriend, it would call me back and I would go running back to news. Um, but even in that space, I just, I was preparing to tell this story. I knew it was a story that needed to be told. And in 2016, that's when I started doing research. And I took, Amy, I will tell you, 18 months of solid writing. And it was torture. I wrote every single word in this book. I wrote every single sentence and I wrote it in every way it could be written. And so it flowed. And I did that because I was weaned on geniuses like uh, Toni Morrison, who did the same thing. And I remember her saying, you write a sentence in every form until it sounds right. And that is mental torture. But after 18 months, I was finally done. And I'm just, I'm really proud of this body of work. It's a beautifully written book. And I was, I'm actually surprised that a political powerhouse journalist such as yourself um, is inspired by a Toni Morrison. That, yeah. that surprises me, uh, but, but maybe not. 
Well, I, I love writing. I love the art of the written language. And I think at the end of the day, what we in journalism do is tell stories. And so she's very much a storyteller. And even though her stories are based in fiction, she drew on real life experience. She drew on systems of white supremacy. She drew on an imagination where there could be some sort of reckoning. Um, I was heartbroken when, when she passed away, what the world would be if she were alive today to see this. James Baldwin, another brilliant writer, if he were alive. So I love um, writing and, well, I shouldn't say that. I love having written. I hate writing. <laughs> Yes. But I do love the art of it and I love reading and I think if you want to be a great writer you have to first be a great reader and she was definitely someone uh, who I read and some of her words were challenging and I remember Oprah said you know Tony we have to read over and over to understand I have to go through every sentence and Toni Morrison very calmly looked at her and said my dear that's called reading. <laughs> so I took it and to she heart. Did tell it like it is I mean there is she a did. there is something about the just blatant bold straight uh, truth-telling that yeah. is so inspiring. I'll never forget, I saw a video of her in an interview um, with a, a, a white journalist who was saying, well, what do you think about the racism in the country? And she said, uh, it's a good question. And I think white people should say, ask what they're going to do about it. It has nothing to do with me. Right. Powerful exchange where she didn't give an inch. Um, have the protest in the wake of the killing of George Floyd and all of the other black people who have lost their lives, <laughs> which built up to this moment, have those protests changed the national narrative? Have they changed the way black people express or are received? Have they changed the way that um, uh, the world of journalism shapes the narrative about uh, black people? I, I think so, but not enough. Um, I, I think that there, we're in this moment where it's a cool thing and it's trendy to talk about it. Um, at some point, this racial reckoning is going to hit newsrooms um, because a lot of people reporting on systems of white supremacy are intentionally or unintentionally still practicing it in areas where they work, which directly impacts the narrative. Uh, one example, I think, is you'll have a lot of reporters get an interview with Mike Pence or Peter Navarro uh, or even Donald Trump uh, or Bill Barr, and, and they will ask, is there a systemic racism in the United States? Is there a systemic racism in law enforcement? And the question itself is so disrespectful because we wouldn't ask somebody. The question uh, itself is racist because- Right, it's disrespectful. We wouldn't ask somebody, are lemons yellow? That's an obvious statement. The better question yeah. is- Are lemons yellow? yellow. Right. We know systemic racism exists. How does your administration plan to address it? And so they've given the administration an out simply by posing an asinine question. And so I think for journalists who are a part of this beltway chattering class, who have, you know, been blanketed in privilege and stripped of all diversity, for them, perhaps it is a question. But for the rising majority of this country, for masses of people of color across this country, we know the answer. So as long as they're talking to and about each other, we're never having real conversations. And that's why we have to continue to fight for power, to fight for access, and to keep disrupting this space. And taking up space is our full authentic selves and showing up in a space where we are comfortable making people uncomfortable with asking questions or speaking our full truth. 
And so I've tried to do that in my capacity. I'm pleased to be joined by other people who are increasingly more bold and audacious in uh, what, what they speak while, while they're on air or in writing, um, because a lot of newsrooms are still run by older white men, and they're appealing to uh, viewers who average between 62 and 65-year-old um, white men. And you have to keep reminding some of these execs, hey, that crowd ain't immortal. So I speak to the rising majority of this country while you keep trying to cater to a shrinking majority. It only makes sense to your bottom line to help give a megaphone to folks like me and other folks who are speaking a bold truth that it won't be the norm in, in, anymore. Like, you know, the fact that there used to be a colored water fountain and a drinking water fountain. Not so long ago, that was the norm. What are we going to be looking at 20 years from now appalled that we consider normalcy in this moment in time? Well, you know, what's interesting is that this is not a black and white issue. Um, right. In the, the LA Times, a group of uh, Latinx uh, people that work for the company in various, you know, reporters and in and, uh, and other roles, uh, signed a letter demanding yeah. that the LA Times uh, hire more uh, people from the community, given how many people in California are in the, are in, are Latinx, are in the community. Yeah. And so I think that this, what you're talking about is um, uh, inspiring other communities and we're seeing reflection of this in other communities. Can I talk to you about 2020? Let's, do are, let's get into it. Listen, we're, over, we're just as we're talking, we're just a uh, little over a hundred days from the most important election of our lifetimes. I will just say, we don't even have to argue. Things were not that great for black people before Trump took office for right. black women, um, although we put it all in there, high, highest educated group in, in the country and uh, really highest turnout group of voters, uh, things weren't all great around uh, uh, economic uh, possibilities and, and health and uh, disparities and things like that. Right. I guess my, 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 my question 100 days out is, uh, how are you assessing the political voice and the political power of black people in this moment. And I will just say for the people who are watching, so there's no question, black people are 25% of Democratic Party voters, and we are uh, the most loyal as a group, uh, Democratic Party voters. So I just wanna get yeah. that out of the way. And I want, uh, you know, when, when you know, the, your, your introduction by Michael Eric Dyson starts out with a kind of a, um, uh, Clyburn's statement about Joe, uh, Joe Biden that really catapults him uh, to the front of the pack, really becomes the nominee for the, the Democratic Party running for president. Assess the political power and voice of, of black voters in this moment. So, you know, I pinned an op-ed with uh, some friends, uh, Angela Rye from CNN, Sunny Hostin from The View, Brittany Packnett, the great actor, or uh, the great activist, Amanda Seals, the great actress, and Latasha Brown, who you know, I am the president of her fan club. I'm happy to share the title with you. Uh, she's uh, so amazing. And we talked about the, the role that, that Black voters have played, not just now, but through, throughout democracy. But in this op-ed, um, we were trying to punctuate uh, how we resurrect campaigns, how we decide campaigns. And that's part of the theme I wrote in the book, uh, to celebrate Black people as the superheroes they are uh, in this country. So even now, um, what we see a lot of stories about 
people standing in these long lines in Wisconsin and how awful it is. And, you know, now all of a sudden people are interested in voter suppression, even though this has been something we've been impacted by for years. And so as people are just now starting to pay attention to our reality, I thought about how, how Black voters have always put our life and our livelihoods on the line every single time we cast a ballot. The wealth that Black people have created for this country and never really been acknowledged. That kind of resentment has rippled through time and created generational trauma in our lives. And so in this moment, while we are reimagining America, we are reimagining a government that is not only of the people, by the people, and for the people, but when for the people includes us. And it baffles me, Amy, that so many people still maintain loyalty to this president. They still look at him as though he is protecting something that's being taken away. And so as we see voters still show up in drove numbers, we're not a homogenous group of voters. We are demanding something better from a country that we have long served. And we still have pushback. And we're going to be facing an unholy trinity this election cycle. We will have foreign election interference that specifically targets us, GOP-led voter suppression, and the fallout of COVID-19. But watch Black voters shape democracy, just as we did during the Democratic primary, just as we've always done, just as we did in 2016, despite the political narrative that we didn't show up. Because as you know, Black voters did overwhelmingly show up. There were a lot of white people who were very excited about the presidency of a Donald Trump uh, who overwhelmed and over-indexed that um at voting booths, and they did not have the hurdles that Black voters face. Let me just ask you right there. One thing that I have, um, particularly around uh, 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 from white women, surprised that the majority of white women are Republican. Surprised that uh, that for decades, uh, majority of white voters have been conservative and increasingly so, as well as as you mentioned, a shrinking part of the base. How does that serve a particular narrative? I think I'm curious about that because as you're as you're talking about um, uh, the loyalty, we've got to understand it in the context of race. Right. There isn't another way to understand it, given that his base is overwhelmingly white. Yeah. So I actually wrote another op-ed that just ran in USA Today that was an adapted essay um, from my book that specifically focused on the role white women have played. Um, White men represent, um, I think, a a small number of society, but they overwhelmingly are over-indexed in political office. They're still treated and elected as the ruling class in our politics. White women have been their biggest enablers. And so I think we have to have conversation about this. Um, After 2016, uh, a friend of mine sent out an email to all of the white women she knew and said, ladies, a conversation needs to happen. Of course, she was referencing the 53%. And they all wrote her back and said, great, when do you want to have this conversation? And she said, not with me, with each other. You all need to talk to each other. We do our work and we are overwhelmingly held accountable for all our community. So we are saying, yes, ladies, talk to each other. And so some people will get you know, bothered and they say, well, I'm a white woman and I support um, you know, Black Lives Matter, and I'm, I'm making, uh, you know, contributions and, and trying to be an ally. And that's great, because we do need that. It does take an effort. However, 
I would encourage people, talk to your girlfriends. Like, don't just unfriend the mega supporter. Confront her with that support. Confront her with the truth. Confront her with facts. Confront her with reality. Don't just ignore your racist uh, uncle at Thanksgiving. Like, if we're held responsible for our community, it's time for everybody to be held responsible for their community. And as long as people are looking at this, like, you are taking something away from me. That's going to be a problem. As long as for the people includes people of color, that seems to be a problem because people think that they are losing while we are winning. And every time I think, wow, some people in white America really think we are winning. I mean, it's enough to make me burst into laughter and then into tears because I haven't seen us have these overwhelming gains. I've seen a lot of us sit by and watch whiteness work and watch ourselves climb a mountain, a steep mountain with ankle weights on. So, and a lot of times our issues, Amy, as you well know, align. Our issues align. But it's the fact that people don't want a government to serve people who don't look like them. They're fine with corporate welfare, but not with a government that serves us and doesn't kill us. It's a problem. And I haven't figured out their reason. I don't try to figure out their reason. I try to focus my efforts and energy on appealing to people who can be informed and inspired. And I just... You know, it's been a challenge to try to bridge that divide, but I don't think that's my ministry. That's somebody else's ministry. Uh, I appreciate the comments. And uh, let me ask you about this, because a couple of days ago, Kasich was announced as a speaker. Now, those of us who understand that politician uh, and you have uh, you tweeted about this recently. His role in Ohio has been to enable voter suppression one specific thing that I know that he was involved in because I was paying attention to it, Ohio politics when it happened was yeah. for him to negate souls to the polls. It's a Sunday early voting program that um, helped particularly like pas- pastors and churches organize in the pews to get people to actually vote uh, black people to vote. And he was involved in ending that program in Ohio. Yeah. Why is he speak? How do you, how do you assess he- why he's speaking at the DNC given that black women are six times more likely to vote for a Democrat than, than white men, is it saying something about who's important, who the Democratic Party is going for, who they think they can win over? So much of what we know about politics is filtered through a media landscape that centers white people in all their conversations. And so sometimes there is a tendency of the Democratic Party to make their appeal to people who can uh, you know, appeal to these Trump voters or these swing voters. I don't even know what a swing voter is in this time or win these red states. And I consistently during the Democratic primary said, hey, you're running as a Democrat. Talk to me about how you can win some blue states. I don't want to hear how you can appeal to Trump voters. Dance with the one who brung you. And too many people are so enthralled and and just excited about winning somebody who doesn't want them. And it's like, are you an insecure teenage girl? Like they left you a long time ago. The last time the Democratic Party won the majority white vote was in 1964. The last time the uh, the, uh, American electorate was predominantly white was 1976 when it was an 89% white electorate. So where they are now is just out of step with uh, the rising majority of this country and the changing demographics in the American body politic. So I am baffled that he's invited. I'd I'd be curious how many Democrats will be invited to speak at the RNC. And it does send a message. And so, you know, when people, which I understand people are nervous about, you know, black voters making these asks because we've been so historically brutalized. So people get scared and it's like, no, we just have to get this white supremacist out of office. But I would say, you know, evangelicals get to make their demands. Gun lobby gets to make their demands. Single issue voters get to make their demands. 
Why can we not, as Black people, make demands of our government, make demands of a party that we disproportionately uphold? And now that you see they are valuing somebody like John Kasich, who has been the antithesis of a lot of what we've been fighting for, I just have to tell people, don't at me anymore. Don't come at me anymore when I am advocating, when we sit at the epicenter of political power, and this party has leapfrogged over a lot of y'all to give John Kasich a huge platform. What a slap in the face. But it's fine because Black women are used to it, but we will continue to try to disrupt that system and that way of thinking. And, you know, un until there is a true reckoning, uh, not just culturally, but in, in terms of power in, in, in po the political party, I don't see this voting well for Democrats. I could not agree more, but let me ask about one thing you said. It's fine because Black women, is it fine? Black women are used to it. And I'm going to put us in the same category it's happened. It happened in 2016. We saw Hillary Clinton, a lot of her campaign and her messaging, even centering around suffragettes, people saying it's 100 years of suffrage. No, it's not. Not for us. Black, not women, for had, us. black women, Asian American women, uh, Latin, Latinx and most indigenous yeah. women had access to the ballot box after 1965, with very yep. few exceptions. So it's not 100 years for us. But to center a campaign messaging and uh, narrative around that, centered white yeah. Whiteness. So it happened in 2016, coupled with uh, underinvestment in some swing states where you're not speaking to black uh, women or men uh, that could have made the difference in states like Georgia, uh, Michigan, uh, Wisconsin. I guess the, the question is, is this why people are excited about the Lincoln Project? The link, uh, you know, they're, they're yeah. thinking that um, never Trump Republicans can find a home that will bring come in in droves and will help to win uh, the battleground states. I mean, is that the belief that people are operating off of to prioritize well, a Kasich over a black woman, for example? Yeah. So let me first clarify when I say it's fine, what I mean. Fine. I don't mean that it's, it's fine as in it's okay. I mean that it's fine that black women will still show up because we vote in our self-interest and we also vote in for interest of the greater good. And when we organize, we don't just organize ourselves. We organize community, as you well know. And you even had a, a beautiful forum where black women and all women of color really were censored uh, in the conversation that should have been among, breaking news across the networks. Um, but we've got a long way to go there. But kudos to that. So that's what I mean when I say it's fine. Not that it's acceptable, because quite frankly, you're right. It's unacceptable. Also, yes, 1920 is when white women got the right to vote. That does not apply to us. And you will hear time and again, as we come up on the 100 year anniversary, people repeatedly, mistakenly celebrate this as an opportunity for all women, which we know is, is not true. And so as I see the party overlook um, black women, because they've made their efforts, but it's kind of in the same way as, um, as as some of the media landscape is making efforts to include more diverse voices. And they say, well, we're going to have a race team and we're going to have these race verticals. It still treats us as though we're the potato when we're the steak. OK, we are the main dish. We are not the side dish. So as, as long as you have these powerful entities treating us as though we can't be roped into the main part of this conversation, it's going to be really uncomfortable when we stop asking for a seat at the table and we sit at the helm of the table. And that time is coming whether people like it or not. I think right now we're in a revolution where you can ag agree or disagree on, on the revolution. You can take one side or another. But I say we're really in an evolution. And an evolution, don't give a damn if you agree or disagree. You just get left behind. And I think in this evolution of America, where Black women, again, sit at the epicenter of political power, there are too many of us who are saying we are not going back. 
And it is not the time as an American body politic reimagines this government, it's not the time to appeal to people who are really political anachronisms at this point. And so we'll see what happens. I know black women always show up and show out during the political season, but I think after this, this is the last time that that white people will sit, will be centered at everything. I think this is a, a point in time where we're gonna have to share in this power structure and that's gonna be uncomfortable for some people. Oh, and the Lincoln Project. I just wanna answer the Lincoln Project. So I'm excited. I know Rick Wilson and my friend Kurt Bardella and all those guys are over there. A conversation that I wanna have that hopefully you'll see me have um, at MSNBC at some point is the never Trumpers because you know a lot of these people are allies now but what does it look like when a Democrat is in office is the enemy of my enemy still my friend or are you still my enemy because a lot of these folks help create the path for this man to get right to the White House and now you know Frankenstein was the doctor not the monster this is the monster y'all created and so now that the monster has turned on you and you want to come scurry over here and be BFFs with us, that's fine. We're here for the allyship, but I got one eye on you like this. <laughs> you know, I stay woke. I'm not sleeping on it. And I want to know, post-2020, what does your relationship look like? What lessons have you learned? And how will you confront and disrupt the system of white supremacy that you not only benefited on, but perpetuated? I'm transparent. I have called for a woman of color and a black woman vice president on the ticket for months. So that's transparent for me. How yeah. important is that decision for you? Well, we wrote a whole op-ed about it, calling for uh, a black woman vice president. I think, you know, there are a lot of people who are excited about um, the idea of a 2008 Joe Biden, but the reality of a 2020 Joe Biden with a newer, younger American electorate, it's not the time to make safe choices. And I think he does need somebody who can be exciting. Um, and somebody, if we weren't dealing with a global pandemic, who is somebody who could pack arenas, who people are going to be so thrilled to see and get a, a piece of? And, you know, this is where ego has to be set aside and we have to think down ballot. We have to think Congress and the Senate and we have to think second term. And I think, you know, as long as you're operating from a space of white man ego, you might have a tendency to make a misstep. And when you're saying things like Donald Trump is our first racist president, if that ain't the sign that you need a black woman to hold your hand and usher you across this finish line, I don't know what is. Because right now he has all these female surrogates, amazing people like Ashley Allison and Karine Jean-Pierre and Simone is on the team. You got people around you. But when it comes to the top of this ticket and time to cast the ballot, he needs a, a, a woman who is going to just really dance him across this finish line. Because right now, I think there are a lot of people with concerns. And I know I have concerns. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of concerns out there. We just did a uh, series of listening sessions with women of color in battleground states. And we heard about um, an enthusiasm gap. And um, it, we've, we've seen that having a, a Black woman... Um, at the top of the ticket could really, really help bring out because it's it's you, you said it earlier, black women are going to turn out for the Democrat. We're the most loyal Democratic voters, but it's the yeah. number. It's the it's the number. Um, are we going to close the gap in um, Pennsylvania? Are there more black right. women who are going to come in Philly? What about Houston? What about Miami and in, in the state of right. Florida? Uh, what about Phoenix? And I think those are it's literally the number of turnout um, that. That, that I'm also interested in. Okay, let me come, come to a couple of questions. Uh, here's one. What's it feel like Democrats resist 
using their leverage that is our base in the bulk of the country, yet policy seems so far uh, behind this reality. I interpret this to mean, why does the base not see a reality of the policymaking coming from the Democratic Party? Uh, let's just take something, maybe the defund police or any of the other uh, issues that you see coming from uh, the black community right now. So again, this is something that we've seen at the highest level of government. We've seen in our candidates, um, you know, even with Joe Biden, his response to this was, no, I'm going to give more money to the police. Law enforcement ain't with you, homie. You know, like they are, they have solidified themselves. Many, obviously not everybody, but many have solidified themselves to be, you know, members of MAGA. So I, um, you know, I, I think that's not necessarily true at every part of the government. I think you know, even if Joe Biden is elected, he will be facing a very progressive Congress, uh, uh, the most diverse Congress the country has ever seen. Um, the 116th Congress was very diverse, and it's only gotten more so. And the squad is going to have company. So when you have people like Richie Torres um, and Jamal Bowman, who unseated an, incum an incumbent, um, I think it's going to be really hard to legislate um, as though it's 1994. That's not going to happen. And, and when you see people winning these elections based on progressive policies steeped in uh, Black Lives Matter, the Black Lives Matter mantra, I'm not too concerned um, that at least from a legislative perspective, um, that this will be a problem if, if uh, that voters are able to help turn, um, flip the Senate as well. I mean, I think you have you look at the beat, I wrote about a ton of legislation that was really speaking to the rising majority and really reflective of what America will look like. Um, but all these amazing bills that were very comprehensive fell flat at a Republican-controlled Senate, the upper chamber. And so I know the presidential election takes up all the oxygen in the room, but there really is a, a lot um, that happens at the legislative branch that I think if you take the Senate, we'll see a different uh, landscape in government. And it's worth noting also that a lot of these fights, let's say the call for defunding police or shifting resources. Uh, I live in Oakland, California, but 44% of our city budget goes to the police department. 2% yeah. goes to parks and recs. And that's the same story in a lot of cities. Uh, those are local fights. So who runs yes. for school board, who runs for city council, who runs exactly. for the county? Those are actually uh, real critical. Um, exactly. Well national. Yeah. Um, yeah. Here's another question. Do you have any thoughts about let, I, the whole there's a section of your book that really uh, delves deep into voter suppression? It's not a mm -hmm. new issue. It's something that um, a lot of a lot of uh, folks have w woke up to in 2018, watching Stacey Abrams race and the, uh, the, the blatant voter suppression that happened in in, in Georgia. Uh, do you have any thoughts about how COVID <laughs> affects Black voter turnout um, and compounds a problem that's already in place, particularly in battleground states where high voter turnout amongst Black voters is, is really going to make the difference for Democrats? Yeah, I think this is going to be uh, a major issue, like we saw in Wisconsin. Um, and it's not just the, the fallout of, of COVID. It's foreign election interference that specifically targets us and GOP-led um, voter suppression. And so when we're asking people to hurdle these three major um, challenges, I think we have to give them something um, to vote for. And our uh, election protection is down. We've already seen um, we know Russia is, is trying already. There's always been uh, already been proof that Iran tried to infiltrate um, our elections. Um, and I don't imagine China will sit this out. And so Donald Trump has already tried to sow doubt 
uh, in the election results. I don't think that we'll know who our president is necessarily on November 3rd. I don't think, um, if, if it's not a decisive victory, and even then, I suspect he might try and challenge it. Um, he's already attacked mail-in ballots, even though he votes by mail-in ballots. So I think um, the suppression issue is, is not something that gets enough attention. And, you know, I will say that, um, you know, voter suppression just recently became a story. I write about it, as you mentioned in my book, um, in, in, in Georgia, there, Brian Kemp is literally jailed people, Black people, for running for office and winning. So a lot of people think that this Jim Crow era of voter suppression is long gone, but the fact is that it's still thriving and still helping to elect people. Eric Holder is suing the state of Mississippi right now for Jim Crow era that keeps the, the power structure rested um, with, you know, predominantly conservative Republican white men in the state. Mike Espy, uh, who's running for Senate in Mississippi, outraised the incumbent senator, Cindy Hyde-Smith, who loves to tell lynching jokes. He outraised her. I think that says something that, you know, first it says that the South is red only until it ain't. And second, that victory is possible and, and that people are just ready to disrupt um, all these efforts to, to keep our, our to keep us out of the, the ballot box. So it makes me nervous because I, I think um, the discord we'll see in November is, you know, I don't want to be hyperbolic, but I do think that things could be violence when you see some of the MAGA supporters pulling guns on peaceful protesters. Um, CBS News ran a segment that they called Trump supporters sharing their thoughts. And it was a ton of people. One guy actually said that Trump won't be removed from office. I have a 357 Magnum that says otherwise. When you have people like this in the base who are voters, I, I'm concerned about the peaceful transition of power that has kept this country functioning for so long, to be honest. The greatest modern challenge to uh, democracy. What does your research, your writing, your work uh, tell you about the best way for, I, I would just start with the Black community, the multiracial uh, folks who live in um, uh, communities across the country to prepare for uh, the possibility of there being a uh, Trump not leaving peacefully or contesting the results yeah. of the election. Um, I'm thinking about Al Gore, thinking about uh, how he, yeah. you know, there, were, there was a lot of evidence that there had been something happening in Ohio, you know, and, and hanging chads in Florida that contributed yeah. And, you know, some cheating that happened, but he withdrew his claim and there was a peaceful transfer of power. I, I just, how do we prepare for uh, that threat? So um, the, the Times actually did a great piece uh, on this about the legality of it. So, and this is another discussion that uh, I hope to have uh, in the near future, but there actually is um, a uh, law law enforcement issues and constitutional issues in play that no member of his cabinet um, can aid him legally in trying to keep him in power. But the challenge is, what if he names uh, Jared Kushner acting secretary of defense or Ivanka acting secretary of interior? I mean, everybody who keeps saying, oh, he can't do that. He won't do that. Well, we've seen him do that. We've seen him do these things. We've seen him erode the core pillars of democracy. So what does it look like when he starts to do that now? And I think we have a young country that has never been tested like this, has never been tested to this degree. And so if that happens, again, I anticipate that it will be a disruption. And so what I want to ask 
um, some of the election analysts uh, who, who I'll be talking to and just um, a national emergency preparedness analyst is how far down the line do we have to go if he literally just does not exit? Because that's not an area of, of expertise that I have, but it's a question on the minds of a lot of voters. And I think we have to consider that. I've heard it. And I've heard a lot of people bring up uh, the, uh, the, for, the the military, paramilitary forces that yeah. we see in um, still in Portland, Oregon, uh, they report up to, through Homeland Security directly to the president. I've heard a lot of concern about that role, too. Yeah, and it's legitimate concern. It's legitimate concern. And these were things that we were saying in 2016. And I have to tell you, Amy, I, you know, they say you just have to move forward, but I am petty enough that every day I want to shout to the top of my lungs, we try to tell you. We try to tell you. And here we are. Look where white supremacy gets us, because this president was elected on white supremacy. And this has always been America's greatest weakness. So it's very concerning. And I I think we will be tested in ways that we have never been tested before. And I don't feel optimistic about the outcome. But what I do feel optimistic about is being united with the people. And I know this is my spirit is I would rather fight to the death before I just lay down and die. Not let white supremacy have the last word. That's right. <sighs> okay, you're giving me <laughs> life. Time. Giving me life and also <laughs> making me a bit terrified. But I'm going to ask you more <laughs> questions from, from folks. Um, you know, the, the democracy and the future of the country is about more than, than the vote. Um, what, is, what do you want people to do besides vote? Uh, what's your goal? What are you fighting to create in this lifetime? And uh, further, can you share what your hopeful vision of the future of America looks like? Yeah. So I think besides vote um, is inspire people who don't feel in, in inspired. Um, you know, I certainly understand people, um, Latasha Brown, who does great work, talk me through this in such a great way. And, you know, there are so many Black people who don't trust the system. You know, this is a system that kept their families in red line communities, that keep their children in dilapidated schools, that imprisons their sons, that kills their brothers, that beat their mothers, all the things, all the ways that the system has failed us. And we have to ask people, don't believe in this system, believe in you, get a sense of agency about you and how you envision this country to be. What if you get to be the architect of the next phase of democracy. What does that look like? And I, I, I hope that people can help have those conversations because while there are some people who are talking to, you know, the Midwestern Rust Belt working class, I think there needs to be just as many, if not more people talking to the dudes on the block, you know, or, or the, the, the chicks in the, the nail salon, you know, because these are our voters as, as well. Um, and if they're not voters, they're potential voters and, and people who hold potential political power. Um, my hopeful vision for uh, uh, America is that that people, um, sorry, this dog is so bad. My hopeful vision, my hopeful vision is for America is that everybody participates in this democracy because that's what, what democracy is. Um, and, and that everybody gets a voice in what this country looks like. When I hear some of these Trump supporters comments uh, sometimes I do these radio shows and they call in and I think, oh, my God, this person's vote counts just as much as mine. Um, and one last thing before, before I forget, another thing that people can do, because my focus is media. 
And I think, you know, people, I cry for more diversity in media. I challenge the media landscape all the time. Other people are always echoing my thoughts and telling me how much that means. Well, right now we have a black woman in prime time and how you let people know that you appreciate that is by tuning in, by delivering those ratings, by elevating, by posting, by tweeting, by sharing your enthusiasm about the program. Um, because then that sends a message that, yeah, you know what? We ought to do more of that. We ought to have more voices like this on every platform. And that's why, you know, when one of us wins, we all win. And that's, you know, when I want to, when I look to my left and my right, I want to see Amy sitting at the top of political power. When I look to my right, I want to see Joy taking Emmys. We're getting millions of viewers because that energy is contagious. And by osmosis, we all elevate that way. So as, as long as we can do that with and for each other, um, I, that, gives, that gives me the one sliver of hope and optimism. Well, you're giving me, I mean, you're giving me hope and optimism because <laughs> the last thing you said was you have to listen to Trump people spew the things that they're saying. On the other hand, you're cheerleading uh, uh, black people, women who are, uh, and you want everyone uh, to to take their place. Like it's 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 beautiful. I just wondered, just on a personal note, uh, you've been in this game for a while. How do you stay so positive? I'm not always positive. <laughs> I have my days, and I, I have my frustration. Sometimes I have my hours. You know, earlier today I had an hour. I was literally losing my breath trying to breathe. But you know, I just my anger, to be honest with you, drives me sometimes. I'm so angry at what I see. Um, the first time I sat in the host chair for Joy it was July Fourth weekend, and um, Donald Trump had. I thought I would be nervous in the chair. But Donald Trump spoke that Friday at Mount Rushmore, and I didn't watch it the night before. I said, I'll wake up and watch it Saturday morning. And I watched it, and I was so angry, Amy. I was so angry. I remember walking to 30 Rock. I was walking like something, like I'm ready. I was walking like I was in Malcolm X about to get Brother Johnson out of jail. I was just militant walking. And I was ready. I wanted to respond. I wanted to respond to this blatantly racist, bigoted, tone and I watched Native Americans there get arrested on their land, on their land. And it was just heartbreaking and frustrating. And so typically when I feel that way, I'm like, let's go. You know, I want to write a book. I want to write an op-ed. I want to get on somebody's television. And I'm just in that space, very comfortable making whoever the hell feels uncomfortable, uncomfortable, because they have to ask, well, why do I feel uncomfortable with her speaking this solid truth about who this country is? And I think that's what it what it takes. And people, honestly, I mean this from the bottom of my heart, people like you, I know that there have been times where you have had to be frustrated at things you saw in this political landscape, the amazing work that She the People does, the uphill battles that you climb. And I know if today I had a negative thought, I would think, man, I bet Amy had some hard times and she's still there and she's pleasant and she's smiling. Um, Joy, you know, a mutual friend of ours, what she has to go through, but she still shows up and she does the job. I think of the lineage we come from, the people, what right do I ever have to be tired or to complain or to, to give up or, or even rest sometimes, um, even though self-care matters. But I just, I feel like, I, you know, the blood of the enslaved runs through me and the spirit of my sisters in this space and my brethren and my countrymen I feel like we were made, we, you, me, and other people in this space, we were made for a moment such as this. So I have to become equal to that moment, even on my darkest days, even in my most tired of times. My mother went into the hospital the day that I was on air. She broke her ankle. 
The next day, I was hosting in the chair. During the commercial breaks, I'm dealing with her insurance, ordering her Uber Eats, trying to make sure she's taken care of. When the camera comes back, Tiffany, we're coming to you in 543. What do you see? Welcome back to A Enjoy. This is Tiffany Cross. You know why? Because that's what Black women do every single day. We are juggling all kinds of things. And all you see is the duck sailing. You don't see our feet going like this underwater because that's what we do. So... I'm inspired by everything I see around me and the spirit and energy of people like you. It really does speak to me all the time. Even if I don't tell you that, Amy, it speaks to me here all the time. Well, this is speaking to me too. And um, so many of us who are, we're doing our best. We're putting it all out there. Um, We're doing it from our houses with the dogs sitting in our lap or the kids running around, (laughs) they're not in school, uh, worried about our work or the rent or, and we're still doing it. Um, I think that's where, the inspiration for your book really, really shines through. Your spirit really shines through. It's beautiful. And it's a miracle that you can work in politics and still have that, uh, that love um, and that sense of, you know, courage. And um, I admire that so much. And it also, it inspires me so much. How do you think Joe Biden's going to do in the debates? Trump's going to fight dirty, not sure. And the, the question continues, not sure if Joe Biden will go as low as Trump will. And actually, do debates really matter? Because I I also want to know from your perspective. So I do think debates matter. Um, and I'm very concerned about Joe Biden in a debate. I almost wish he could tag out his running mate and let them debate. Because Pence, I think, is a much easier um, debater. Um, yeah, I think Joe Biden has suffered so much. And, you know, he lost children, which is a pain I can't even imagine. And dealing with someone who has no morals, and who really just doesn't care, who will do whatever to win. I'm afraid of what he might bring up that will, um, because his base doesn't care. You know, like he won't lose any points by bringing up someone's deceased wife or children or even his living son um, and, and just diverting. I don't trust that we'll have moderators that will be able to keep this in order. I don't know where physically, how it takes place during a pandemic. I will say I am very happy that I don't think there will be an audience. I think something is lost when you have people singing for their supper and working for an applause line. So the fact that you'll just hear substance from these people, I think will be helpful. Um, but these are, you know, two older men who, um, I I just think it could go either way. Um, I hope Joe Biden, the thing that gives me faith with him is he has an amazing team around him. Um, And I hope that he is mentally and emotionally prepared to square off with someone who has no moral compass whatsoever, um, who could bring, you know, his behavior during his debates with Hillary was so distasteful. Well, I remember him walking behind her on the stage and, uh, being threat, yeah. kind of a combination of creepy and threatening. It's ridiculous. And I, I think in this moment, like I, I wished at the time that Hillary would say, you know, back the hell up, you know, or, or don't get near me. Well, the old, All the old playbook of politics is thrown out. In this space, I think you have to get, you can, there's still dignity um, to this process, which we should maintain, but just a little tinge of knuck if you buck that never hurt anybody. You know, I think you have to give this image like, I'm not the one. Like, don't do that. I might swing on you. Don't do that, you know? So I wish he would give that. Trump's behavior has just opened up so much terrible, abusive behavior. Look at 
the congressman who um, called Yoho. AOC, yes. Yoho, who called uh, just a, I won't even repeat F- yeah. how it horrible matter, but yeah. their colleagues in Congress and for him to accost her that way. Um, and for him, his non-apology justified uh, his behavior. And yeah. he really does not fear any kind of consequence, not from his party. Yeah. So that's what scares me. I'll tell you, Amy, um, I'm going to geek out and talk about Game of Thrones, but there was a season in, in, are you, are you a Game of Thrones person? Okay. I may not be as deep of a geek, but I did watch the whole thing. So let's go. So Cersei Lannister got in trouble and she, she had a trial and she never showed up to trial and everybody was saying, why is she here? We should leave. And everyone said, no, no, no. She knows the consequences of her actions. She'll show up. And a woman said she knows the consequences of her actions. She understands them and she's still not here, which means she has no intention of suffering those consequences. That is how I look at this Trump presidency. He operates as though he has certain assurances that there is no consequence to his actions. And that is what we all have to question, particularly those in the media landscape. Instead of worrying about access to this White House, they ought to be worried about covering who else has access to this White House that we don't know about. I am. Just reminds me. Uh, you know, I was talking to my 84 year old dad. Um, I said, dad, I'm really worried. I'm, I'm worried about Trump uh, becoming a dictator and destroying yeah, our democracy. Becoming. Being, I mean, I think we're, yeah. here. I think we're here. I, I don't know. I think that's part of the narrative. Someday it might be. I think we're, we're here. Um, yeah. And I, I said, I'm worried. And my dad said, don't worry. You know what happens to dictators? And I was like, Ooh, what did he just tell me? And um, so there is something, because I remember in Cersei's case, I remember the the story of, so what, you know, given that that you've kind of laid out some some pretty scary scenarios happening in 2020, something positive, something powerful could happen in this transformational moment. Um, You know, kind of lay that out for us. You talked about the possibility to, to shift where people, you know, participate more expansively and powerfully and deeply in democracy as voters. Talk to me more about what the transformational moment might mean for this country. So it depends on what we're transforming from and what we're transforming to. Um, I think, you know, Donald Trump did not invent white supremacy and it won't end with his departure uh, should that happen. So I think I would just go back to the revolution versus the evolution. And whatever this next phase of democracy looks like, I certainly plan on being one of the architects of it. And I think uh, other people have to be prepared for that as well. Donald Trump has reshaped our judiciary. So when he leaves office, the remnants of him will still very much be felt by an unforgiving criminal justice system that is has a disproportionate impact, an adverse impact on black and brown communities. Um, policies that he set in place still exist. Um, the judiciary is lifetime appointment, so I don't even know how you undo that. Should uh, he get another Supreme Court vacancy, Mitch McConnell has already said they will fill the seat despite him obstructing um, Obama's chances. Um, I, the, the programs that he said that he got rid of that will need to be rebuilt, what he did to the DOJ, I mean, he reshaped the Department of Justice um, and reshaped who the Department of Justice aims to serve. I I just think there's going to be a lot of work to be done. um, And everybody has to prepare, be prepared to do a little bit of that work. Because again, like you said, even at the local level, 
Um, you know, and I know because I have not always voted. I have not always participated at the minutia level of, of government. But people often use the school board as an entree into running for higher office. Um, the state legislatures that are GOP controlled, they control how your local elections are run. So this is going to be a complete overhaul of what the government looks like, particularly as people are reimagining public safety and what that looks like. So uh, a lot of this will be left at the local level um, to happen, which is great because I think more people need to participate in that. Everybody was so excited about the First Step Act, um, but it's called the First Step Act because there needs to be a second and third step. And a lot of that takes place at the local level. Um, so yeah, I think there's so much, so much in every area of our government that will need to be transformed, quite frankly. I guess the, 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 the last question, and, and this is kind of combining um, in just our last couple of minutes, um, there's some questions about the role that um, uh, white people can play in this moment. We talk, we've talked in this last hour a lot of black, about black, the black community and black voters, black women. When we look out beyond uh, to, to, to white voters, the white community, white people, and their responsibility in this moment. You know, give, give a couple of words to people who are wondering, you know, you've got a system that uh, does everything it can to say Black lives don't matter. So for people yeah. who want to say Black lives matter, what's the role for white people? So I find um, the data really interesting around this. There are so many people who support Black Lives Matter, but they don't support tearing down the Confederate monuments or they don't support defunding the police, um, which people need to understand what that means. That doesn't mean, you know, how the Donald Trump commercials have, have made it look like there is no 911. That's not what it is. It's rethinking public safety, allocating those funds. Um, to other people. And so I think people have to ask themselves, what does Black Lives Matter mean, mean to you? And it's not just, it's kind of like the way that people say, um, you know, they think racism is showing up in a, a clan's hood or, you know, going, you know, walking around in skinhead attire. And we know that's not uh, all it means. And so I think when white people show up as allies, um, it's, it's not just showing up to the march. You know, it's not just putting a BLM sticker in your window. So, you know, it's a more a comprehensive effort than that. And it could be, you know, even like the term Karen and people think, you know, oh, the Karen is, you know, somebody who like calls the cops on somebody. And it's like, no, it's Karens at your office. It's Karens who are your neighbors. It's Karens who are constantly in this mode of superiority. It's a really an overhauling way of thinking about life where you are not centered where someone else might take up space in a way that, like even gentrifiers, you know, moving into a neighborhood and walking past people who've been there for years and not speaking or not engaging. Those Black Lives Matter. Those are now your neighbors. I don't care if it's the public housing or somebody who bought a house just like you. They've been living there for a long time. You know, those Black Lives Matter. I think everyone um, across the racial spectrum, including white people, are being called to be uh, multiracial in thinking, uh, to center their, you know, to learn what it is to be an advocate for racial justice, an anti-racist activist, right. and to be part of the new multiracial democracy, which is, you are one of the architects of the future. I am uh, just so grateful uh, for you and uh, for your book, your beautiful book, um, and for your words and your, your spirit and sharing this time with us um, today. 
Thank you so much, Amy. I, I could not imagine a better person to have this conversation with. And when the global pandemic is passed, we will do this over cocktail glasses, I hope. <laughs> Agreed. Um, thank you so much. And um, thank you. let me just say our thanks to Tiffany Cross, author of the new book, Say It Louder, for joining us today. We'd also like to thank uh, the audience, uh, you, who for, for watching and participating and asking your questions. If you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club effort in making virtual programming, just visit commonwealthclub.org online. I'm Amy Allison, founder of She the People, and everyone stay safe. See you next time. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.